Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, guys, um, things are real busy here, and I've got a lot happening today, so I'm going to bang through this Q&A episode this week and just get to your questions and answer them. I do want to encourage you, of course, to check out the Critical Conversation Show and, uh, of course, the Sensibly Speaking podcast. I always plug those because they're important content that I put out there for you guys. And I spend a lot of time uh, working this stuff over and thinking about it and researching and all that. So I hope you guys will take advantage and watch what I'm putting out. All right. That being said, we're going to get straight to your questions this week. So here we go. Johnny No Stars. When I was still an active Scientologist in the 90s, it seemed like every other person I met in Scientology was a past life clear. It was a very popular memory to have been audited by LRH himself, and for some reason, always in St. Hill. Even then, this made no sense to me. There were past life clears who were born in the 1940s, but the first clear, John McMasters, wasn't introduced until 1966, so that doesn't make sense. Still, these clear statuses were thrown around like candy to anyone who wanted one. Also, where are all the past life OTs? Seeing there are probably more past life clears than clears were actually made, you'd think you would have a lot of past life OTs too. After all, it's way easy to remember your past life as an OT, right? Yet I cannot remember ever having heard of even a single past life OT. All right, Johnny. Well, thank you for this question. Uh, you are actually looking at a past life OT. <laughs> or past life clear, I should say. Actually, that was me. I wondered about the OT levels, though, and I had auditing to address whether I might have been poking around in the OT levels in a past life. And that this was um, could have been one of the reasons why I was having some of the case trouble I was having in Scientology. And I did remember being audited at St. Hill and earlier and being in the Sea Org in my last lifetime and all kinds of fun stuff, which kind of um, leads me to the direction that I think a lot of the past life OTs, just to address that, are, and, are, are, they don't really happen very often because a past life clear is a lot easier to produce than a past life OT because with a past life OT, you have to say OT stuff. And unless you're doing this with deception in mind and you go on the internet and go looking at all of it and then go into an auditing session and say all this stuff, that would be deceptive. And that would kind of, you know, not really be the point of doing Scientology in the first place. It's about the experience of doing the auditing and getting rid of the aberrations, the, the, the engrams and, the, and the, the other reactive mind stuff, and then the body thetans that you deal with on the OT levels. So if you had a legit recall of that from a past life, well, great, but I, you're, I never met anybody who actually did that. I did meet lots of past life clears. Well, maybe not lots. I've met a handful of them. It was popular for a period of time, I believe in the late 70s and 80s, for past life clears and natural clears was also a thing that was coming around where a person simply asserted that they were always clear, that they had never had a reactive mind ever. And Hubbard, um, I think there was like, well, you know, one line somewhere or something where he talked about, you know, being a natural clear. It was a line on a correction list or something, you know, were you always clear? And if that read on the e-meter, then you could pursue that and, oh yeah, I've always been clear. And then you're a natural clear, which kind of means that 
you're sort of a baby Thetan in the in the material universe, as I understand it. You've been around for that long here because those of us who have been around forever, um, you know, not all Thetans arrived in the physical universe at the same time. Some are younger than others as far as their emergence into the physical universe. Hubbard said it all started four quadrillion years ago, but he also said other Thetans have come into this universe since then. So they might not necessarily have had all of the, you know, experiences and whatnot that all the other Thetans have had. And of course, though, if you're here on Earth at all, you have experienced, like just straight up, if you're here, you are here because you experienced the Xenu OT3 thing and you got trapped here or sent here and stuck here. So that's kind of a certainty in Scientology that everybody needs OT3. Everybody needs to get the Xenu stuff cleared and learn about the body thetans and do the body thetan thing through the OT levels. And um, and if you guys are tracking with all of this, by the way, you've been watching a lot of my channel because I'm throwing pure Scientologies out here and answering this question. Um, this is just, you know, kind of the, the nature of this. Now, as far as past life clears, though, it seems you might not know or um, are not thinking with the fact that Hubbard claimed that he made clears all the way back to 1947, 48 time period. He said that he, in his experimenting with Dianetics before it was even called Dianetics in Hollywood and in um, other places where he had been working on what became Dianetics, he made clears. He said that. He, he, he said it very uh, outright that, um, that there were clears made as early as 1947 or 48. I can't remember which year. And, uh, but definitely pre-1950. And he said that he audited these people, they were very happy, but they didn't even really have a name for what they were. You know, Dianetics hadn't even been written yet, and Hubbard was just doing whatever it was he was doing, and he was able to make these clears fairly rapidly. And he said that his struggle through the 1950s was trying to teach other people to do what he was doing. And, um, you know, whatever. Uh, what he was, you know, obviously what he was doing was, was messing with people's heads, but, um, but Hubbard was trying to teach other people how to do that, I guess. Uh, okay, so as far as the clear status is being thrown around like candy to anybody who wanted one, that wasn't my Scientology experience. I really did not run into that many past life clears. And I oversaw, uh, the, the, you know, an HGC, I oversaw auditing delivery for, for many, many years. So yeah, it came up every now and again, but it wasn't really that common in my time and in my experience with it. Um, Miscavige has, you know, if anything, been pretty down on and invalidative of past life clears, past life OTs. And it's more like, well, you got to show me proof. You got to show me the money. And one of the things that they asserted that, that, that came straight from Miscavige's mouth in the early 2000s when the whole clear status thing started being reviewed is uh, Miscavige decided that everybody who was clear needed to have it looked into to make sure they were clear. And if you had not received the, the, the operating rule on that review, and RTC representatives around the world enforced this, and, and, and auditing delivery around the world had to comply with this or conform with this, and that is that if you had not received any Dianetics auditing and could not remember having had Dianetics auditing in your past life, 
even if you were past, if you were asserting past life clear and there was no Dianetics being run on you, then you weren't clear because it was only Dianetics that could produce a clear. So, um, so this was how a lot of clear statuses were knocked out aside, invalidated, told they're not that way. And of course, clear is a, is a delusional fantasy state anyway. So we're really not talking about anything real here. So it's easy to change the rules, move the goalposts. Goal you know, you can do this at any time with this kind of arbitrary psychological nonsense that Scientology engages in. So clear is this very, very vaguely defined, very easy to manipulate state. You know, somebody who no longer has their own reactive mind is the official definition of a clear. What the hell does that mean? I, you know, it's, you're defined by what you don't have. It's almost like an atheist. Well, I don't believe in God. Well, are you sure you don't believe in God? Do you believe in God a little bit? You might believe in God. Do you have any belief at all? Is there any kind of thing in your mind that resembles a belief? I mean, you could go round and round and round, figure, figure, figuring on this for years um, because it's just not a very uh, well-defined thing. And to say you don't have this thing, your own reactive mind, okay, you know, but again, prove the negative, right? It's very hard to do, um, especially when you're dealing with something as subjective as um, trauma and abuse and uh, our reactions to that, you know, how we deal with that. And if, you're, if your standard is, well, I no longer feel traumatized, well, lots of things can produce that result. You know, taking a walk can change your mood, and then you don't feel so traumatized in the, in the moment. But give it a week, and something will happen, and you might feel, you know, not having, not, you know, you're not having such a great day. Does that mean you're not clear anymore? You know, if you're a Scientology, clear, and, you, and you're on top of the world, but then the next week... You're all down in the dumps because you remembered, you know, that um, something bad happened to you or your boss gave you a hard time or your kids aren't listening to you or some other thing is stirring you up and making you upset. Well, shit, am I clear now? I don't know. You know, you could question and, and run around with this or be told by Scientologists, well, you have this and this and this happening, therefore you can't be clear. And it's that simple. Boom. You're, you're clear. Now you're not clear. I mean, it's that easy is, is kind of the point I'm trying to make here, right? Is this, is, this is all just sort of, you know, wordplay and, and messing with people's heads, right? Where, which is where it gets not okay. So, um, so as far as the not making sense, as far as the dates thing go, I hope I clarified that Hubbard's claims included anybody could be a past life clear if they had, you know, memories of or could legitimately claim that they could have been audited by L. Ron Hubbard as early as 1948. That's in the books. That's completely legit. And, of course, from that point forward, Dianetics could be claimed to have been run in some fashion or another because, you know, there was a lot of Dianetics being done in 1950, 1951. And um, that's, that's kind of all there was before Hubbard developed Scientology. So you could have a, a, a legitimate claim to past life clear that predates John McMaster's. John McMaster's was the first official clear Hubbard sort of sanctioned out of St. Hill using all of the modern clearing technology that he had you know, worked on for 17 years prior to that, 18, 19 years prior to that. 
But Hubbard claimed that clears were made during before McMaster's, that that, that that did happen. He had done it. Some other select few had done it. What Hubbard uh, complained about was that everybody couldn't do it. It wasn't easy to do. There was no factory assembly line process that you could guarantee somebody could be gotten to the state of clear. And John McMaster's represented the first of the assembly line type clear that per anybody could produce this. And any auditor could take a person in and over the course of, you know, hours, days, weeks of time, they could make a clear. So anyway, I think I'm getting the point there. And um, yeah, as far as past life OTs, I, you know, I never actually recall running into a past life, a, a legit past life OT. Um, I just don't. I don't remember that ever happening. There might have been some, but um, no one I ever met. And like I said, I came kind of close. I was thinking along those lines, wondering about it, talking to my auditor about it. She was asking me questions, asking me about what about this, what about that, trying to, you know, get more out of me. But I, it never really did pan out. I couldn't remember anything that was even approximately close to body thetans. I never imagined uh, that that was a concept until I read about it, you know, in Hubbard's writing after I got out of Scientology. So there you go. Teresa A. Whom do Scientologists revere more, Hubbard or Miscavige? Would a member get in trouble for exalting LRH over DM in a conversation? This is a great question, Teresa, because it's really a bit of a, of a the, the balls are kind of up in the air. It really depends on the context of the situation and who you're talking to. Old school Scientologists, OG Scientologists, guys who've been around since the 70s, 80s. You know, when Hubbard was still alive, Scientology had a very different kind of experience and, and, and spirit to it or flavor to it because... Hubbard was the iconic, you know, salvation figure, the leader, the savior, the genius, the guy who was inventing all of this and discovering it rather and and putting it all out there. But there was the always the possibility when he was alive that you could reach out and contact him, talk to him, have words with him in some fashion. Usually through writing, you could write him a letter or something. And this was really important and Scientologists really valued that that living connection that they could have with L. Ron Hubbard. When he went away, Miscavige took over and he put himself in place very, very authoritatively. And Miscavige comes across as a little bit of a dick, right? He's, I mean, people that I talk to um, who were Scientologists when I was in Scientology negatively reacted to Miscavige back in the 80s and 90s when he was first kind of coming out in the public Forum. I mean, he had come out publicly, you know, in terms of being a Sea Org member, tough guy, you know, enforcing L. Ron Hubbard's will, all the way back to the early 80s with the Mission Network um, takedown and the mission holders being, you know, grilled over. I mean, Miscavige led all of that, that charge and destroyed a lot of lives and almost took Scientology right over a cliff at L. Ron Hubbard's orders. And with the, with the work of the rest of the Sea Org, it wasn't just Miscavige doing that. But it wasn't like Miscavige got a real big, wide, popular name during that time. He was just one of a number of Sea Org executives that people hadn't seen or heard of before. And then this slowly morphed into the modern Scientology management structure that was developed. And then Hubbard died and uh, Miscavige kind of just took the whole thing over. 
Um, the L. Ron Hubbard death event is where most public first actually laid eyes on David Miscavige. Who is this guy? You know, he's the MC of this of this event, and he's talking about Hubbard, and he says he knew him and all this. Okay. Uh, and then over time, they, you know, kind of heard things from him, saw stuff from him in events. He was emceeing events or he was showing up at events. But this was before Miscavige was the sole guy running the whole thing. So, um, so they were also seeing other senior Scientology executives, and they kind of equated them all with one another. Not everybody in the public sector of Scientology is really clear on how the management structure is put together or how the Sea Org organizes itself. They really don't care that much about that kind of thing. So they learn a minimal amount of it, but they don't really pay a whole lot of attention. But over time, as L. Ron Hubbard's legacy or, or memory faded and Miscavige was the living, you know, breathing leader of Scientology, his presence started dominating in his attitudes and ideas and way of talking and way of thinking and the presentations and the grandiose events and all of the, you know, digital displays and graphics and all that stuff. That's all Miscavige. He loves all that crap. So that started sort of defining the Scientology experience more. He was recreating it in his own uh, image, and he was putting himself up more and more, and this is really through the 90s I'm talking about now, that Miscavige really started coming to the fore. And there were two things that solidified his um, seniority and leadership of Scientology, and that was the um, Ted Koppel interview uh, on Nightline, and which Scientologists were uniformly impressed by, loved, thought was amazing, thought Miscavige was awesome, thought he answered all the questions wonderfully. Like, we all thought that was the bee's knees. And then he got the tax exemption, right? And he pushed that through and made the deal with the IRS that was necessary in order for all Scientologists to have tax exemption. And if there is one thing that Scientologists are going to worship you for, it's saving the money because Scientology is so goddamn expensive that they're shelling out thousands of dollars at a pop to, to even be able to do it. So when Miscavige got them tax exemption, oh my God, I can, I can write this off and I can, you know, I can save money. This was huge, huge, right? And they figured Miscavige is the real deal. He's the guy who ended the war with the IRS that had been going on since, you know, as long as anybody could remember, because that war with the IRS goes all the way back to 1967. And there are not a lot of living Scientologists who were around in 1967 as Scientologists. So most Scientologists have that experience of Scientology now. And so Miscavige is their leader and has always been the leader, and they don't have the living memory of L. Ron Hubbard being alive and being around. That's the OG guys. So to them, Miscavige is really the leader and the exalted one and the one who represents what Scientology is and what it can do. And, um, and so it's kind of... You know, if in a way, I guess it's you could look at it as two camps, but it's not really like these are factions or that they war or, or disagree or squabble or something. They don't. It's more like those are the old guys and they've kind of evolved more into 
this is Scientology now. Is you know, it just it's an, and like any other group, it grows, changes, and evolves. So, um, so, so Scientology has sort of evolved from Hubbard in charge to Miscavige in charge. They still pretend that Hubbard is the basis of all of Scientology. They still believe that, that he's the one who wrote all of it, did all the lectures, that he's the source of Scientology. And Miscavige is not considered the source of Scientology, but he has been very hard at work. Um, when you talk about language, loaded language or language manipulation, um, Miscavige not only identifies in the world of Scientology as David Miscavige or chairman of the board or COB, He's also called Department 21 or Source because Department 21 on the Scientology org board is the Department of Source. It's L. Ron Hubbard's department. And, um, and the person who is working in that department in every Scientology organization around the world is called the L. Ron Hubbard Communicator. And this is the person who's supposed to be forwarding L. Ron Hubbard's intention and make sure his policies and his technology are being followed. Well, at the highest level of Scientology, the source department and the source word is used now for David Miscavige. I didn't see a lot of public refer to, to David Miscavige that way, but Sea Org members sure do, right? They, they routinely do. He is Department 21. He is source. So... To the Sea Org's way of thinking, I think you've got David Miscavige in a senior position to L. Ron Hubbard in terms of authority. If it really came down to it, and I've said this before, if it came down to L. Ron Hubbard wrote that you cannot open the box and David Miscavige is ordering you to open the box, you're going to open the box. And if you don't open that box, there's going to be trouble for you because you're not complying with a Department 21 COB source order. And you can fall back to L. Ron Hubbard, and the person who's trying to order you to do this will probably say, yeah, but that doesn't apply in this situation, or there's some other reason why that policy isn't applicable here, and David Miscavige's orders must be followed. That's now, that's command intention. That's what, that's how that manifests. So if you've ever heard of that expression, right, which is what the Sea Org is all about. The Sea Org is about enforcing uh, command intention and David Miscavige is command. So those are kind of some of the levels to this uh, as, as I understand it and as I lived it. Maybe other people had different experiences with this, but, um, but that's how I see it. So there you go. Logamug. Given how expensive it is to reach the higher levels of the bridge and how little staff get paid, is there a really big shortage of qualified staff members to teach the OT-level teachings? In terms of a straight answer in, of supply and demand, I don't think that the demand is outweighing the supply of OT members uh, in the Sea Org. Remember, it's the Sea Organization that is exclusively delivering OT levels or anything having to do with the, with the OT stuff. So you not only have to be an OT to deliver the OT levels or service people on the OT levels, you also have to be in the Sea Org. <laughs> and that's where there is a bit of a, 
um, lack of OTs. Um, and they have to make them, just like you have to make them anywhere else, right? And so there are efforts made periodically within the C organization to boost people up to the OT levels so they can be OT delivery personnel. I was actually on such a schedule. I was going to be made OT because uh, I was clear and they were going to, you know, and this was in the early 2000s, in fact, right before I went to the RPF because it was during that process that I coughed hey, I had this, you know, sort of uh, phone sex thing with this woman, and then she's not my wife, and, you know, <laughs> nuclear explosions went off, and, then, you know, my trip to OT was canceled. I was kicked off that OT train, and I was sent straight to the RPF, so that was so much for that. Um, so you'll see efforts like that made periodically, always in order to fulfill some order or command from Miscavige about personnel um, and needs, right? And uh, people get transferred around in the Sea Org all the time. We just did a podcast where I laid all of this out in some pretty grim detail as to what it was like to live through, you know, transferring people around and how the Sea Org works that way. Um, so OTs are not a dime a dozen. They are, um, they are very prized. They are very special Sea Org members. Um, but OTs can fall out of grace and fall out of flavor just as, or favor rather, uh, just as easily as anybody else can because they screw up just as bad as everybody else does. And in fact, uh, are often put into um, senior positions of authority or power because they're OT. And then they screw up and spectacularly fail. So, you know, if you're an OT, there's judging there. There's, there's, there's certainly status and there is judgment when you fail. Um, you know, that's, that's just part of the, the culture and the package of the whole thing. But anyway, as far as uh, numbers of OTs, they've got enough OTs right now in terms of auditors and case supervisors and, and word clearers and supervisors to, to deal with the demand that they have. They've, they've certainly got that covered. Um, if they were to, you know, get some heavy, heavy influx of new people coming in, um, then they might have problems and they might have to, you know, rearrange and do things. But that's par for the course for Scientology. They've always got personnel problems. Being OT is just one of many, many uh, layers of that problem. Jonathan Perry. Are there Scientologists that have committed suicide because things weren't working out and they were convinced they could just hit the reset button and start all over again due to being an immortal being. For example, maybe you lost all your money, or you couldn't pay for more services, or you ended up on the street, etc. What would keep you from just saying, oh, I'll get this on the next round, and just suiciding? I'm not trying to be facetious, but I wonder if I was 100% convinced of Scientology's version of reality, if that would cross my mind. Okay, Jonathan, thank you for this question, and I'll take it up even though I think it's actually a little silly because there's no way for me or anybody to know why someone suicided, and they're not around to ask anymore. So we can really only guess, unless they left some kind of detailed note behind as to why they did what they did, we're all left to guess what happened and what the motivations were. And when it comes to Scientologists, the last thing anyone is ever talking about is suicide or the subject of it would be considered out ethics, first of all, right? It would just be like, why would you do that? That's crazy. You have a body, you have an opportunity here, 
and you're going to just throw it away and kill your body. That's just re-traumatizing yourself, purposefully re-stimulating yourself and giving into your bank, your reactive mind, your, your, you know, your trauma. Uh, you're just giving into it, right? You're just giving up. And, um, you know, the thing about Scientologists is that they believe that they, you know, never, um, what is that, uh, never give up, never surrender, you know, thing like they, you know, make it go right, figure it out, get your ethics in, work it out. You know, there's always a solution thing. You make it go right. Um, you know, there, there's always a way, you know, they, they have these little mantras and sayings and they use them and they believe them. So, um, so it would be really, really quite, you know, it's not that Scientologists have never suicided. Of course, obviously some Scientologists have. What I'm saying is that collectively, culturally, this is not something Scientologists agree with or think is an okay activity or is that, that it's okay to do. And it would certainly not be something you would do in order to hit the reset button so you can start again. That would be illogical or irrational in the extreme from a Scientologist point of view. One, because of the ethics of it. Okay, you're, you're killing your body. It's the equivalent of, of a murder. But that's really the lesser of the reasoning. The, the, the more of the reasoning is, look, you lucked into or you somehow pulled in getting involved in Scientology this lifetime. You are one of the very tiny, tiny percentage of people on this planet who has managed to do that. And you believe that, you know, with, with all this belief that you have, that you're going to kill yourself, kill your body, and then come back and manage to find Scientology again. But even an OT, unless they're all the way up to the highest OT level, would not have any confidence that they're going to remember all the things that they would have to remember. I kind of, that's where I was trying to go with this is that you, you know, you, you, as a Scientologist, you recognize that you are aberrated and limited and stuck and you're in this trap. You're in this prison. I mean, Earth is a prison planet as far as Scientologists are concerned. So it's, it's not like you're the one who's in the driver's seat. So you have no, causation you have no determinism over what body you're going to get next time around this you know and you can refer to answers i've given even last week about implants for example i mean there's a whole lot of there's a whole litany of reasons why you as a scientologist know that you're not in the driver's seat until you get all the way to the top of the bridge and I'm assuming that the person who is, you know, thinking this, uh, you know, according to the context of your question, is not all the way at the top of the bridge because they're in such despair about needing to move up the bridge that, you know, so, um, so they're in a state of enforced ignorance, I guess you could say, right? And they know it. They, they know. They, they, they don't know where their next body is going to come from, what family it's going to be involved in. Are they going to have money? And most importantly of all, are they going to find Scientology again? Okay, that's the big problem. And there is no guarantee of that. Even if you have 100% faith in Hubbard's beliefs and Hubbard's ideas and the, and the cosmology and mythology of Scientology, you, in fact, 100% faith in this would give you the idea that 
you're going to be a, a, a leaf in the wind as far as what body you're going to get and where you're going to end up. So, um, so there's no guarantee that you're coming back into Scientology, and that would be the that would be the exact reason to not suicide. Okay, and I, there's a little rambling here. I'm, you know, sort of thinking it through as I'm going, but I hope I'm getting across to you that that this would be absolutely, uh, you know, verboten to Scientologists, and they would never think of that as a solution to their problems. And that's at least again, that's my take on it. Steve Wood. What type of cataclysmic event would it take for those in Scientology as a whole to seriously reconsider continuing to be Scientologists? Might it be Tom Cruise going public that he now believes it's a money-grabbing cult and he's been conned his whole life? Or maybe David Miscavige gets arrested and while standing trial admits that he was running a financial con in an attempt to reduce sentencing? Or is it the case that no matter what, the situation is those 25,000 remaining members are staying in regardless? Hey, Steve, thanks for the question. And uh, no, there's no insistence from me that, you know, that every single person remaining in Scientology right now is diehard and would never, ever, you know, uh, change their mind. In fact, I'm, I'm absolutely positive that's not the case. And it's funny because you always ask me these questions and then literally suggest the exact right answer in your question. <laughs> because it would be monumental events like Tom Cruise leaving and publicly speaking out or David Miscavige publicly admitting that he was a fraud and a con man. It would be things like that that would cause mass exodus and total destruction of Scientology. Uh, I'm absolutely sure. Now, Tom Cruise leaving and speaking up would actually not be everybody, okay? And even Miscavige speaking up wouldn't be everybody, but it would be the majority of people, in my opinion. I don't think Scientology would be able to survive as an organization, as a, as a movement, or as a cultural activity that people get involved in, right, in its current state. I don't think that that would last or survive those kind of publicly devastating, you know, media stories. I think Scientologists would, would be absolutely blown away by that. David Miscavige getting arrested would be a big problem. But David Miscavige admitting publicly that he was a con man? Oh, yeah. That would definitely be game over for Scientology. Now... That would not mean that all the books would get burned, all the groups would would die off, there wouldn't be any more Scientology or independent Scientology, because look, there's independent Scientology. It exists even despite a lack of belief in L. Ron Hubbard and a even hatred for David Miscavige, independent Scientology still exists, and a very small number of very fringy, goofy people still follow and go into that. And I have said before and still believe that it is a way station for people on their way mentally out of Scientology to stop in on the independent Scientology movement and sort of use that or be part of that for a while until they get their head clear and realize that that's a con too. But, um, but there are a small, small number of people, numbering in a couple thousand, I think, who are diehard independent Scientologists, which just kind of proves to you that despite any evidence, any facts, any reasoning, any logic you can throw at people, they're just going to believe what they want to believe, and they just don't give a shit what you have to say about it. And that's independent Scientologists, right, for the most part. Um, and it would would be a fraction of the existing Scientologists. They would go and become 
what would now what we would now think of as independent Scientologists. Because if the official church didn't exist anymore, well, you know, what are they? And they might well get away with starting their own activity or their own group. But unless there was an L. Ron Hubbard type in their mix, uh, then you would not get a repeat performance of the evolution and growth of Scientology into the destructive cult that it is today. But you could, you know, it would kind of depend on on who was involved in that mix and whether the right uh, mix of charisma, leadership, gall, you know, and greed <laughs> was there in one of those people to, you know, become a, a new leader for Scientology and take it and build it up into something else. And maybe even under a different name. You know, we've seen this uh, over and over again with Avatar and Access Consciousness and other Scientology offshoots. Est, of course, being, you know, being the most famous, which turned into the forum, landmark forum. I mean, all that's a Scientology offshoot. Uh, so, you know, so you could splinter Scientology off and go off in all these crazy directions, and people have. There's a whole ton, there's a host of groups that have sprung up from Scientology. Uh, many, many, many more than ever survived. Most of them tanked within a few months or a year or two, uh, but not all of them. Some of them are still around, okay? So so that would happen. But, um, but yeah, in terms of, uh, let's see if we can think of any other things that might, um, you know, really dismantle Scientology publicly. Um, not banning it, of course, or regulating it through government you know, or through the law, that's, that's not going to, that's never going to make it go away. Um, I'm just trying to think of in terms of what would Scientologists feel betrayed by or something. I suppose if they were to become a lot more mil openly militant or openly paranoid or openly kind of, kind of cray cray, right? And Scientology could very well go in that direction. I mean, look at the current state of Scientology. It's allied with the Nation of Islam. You've got um, Trump level cultism going on in Scientology and probably causing its own little factioning. Um, but most Scientologists, I think, are kind of on board with some pretty heavy duty conspiracy theory type thinking. You know, this is stuff that doesn't have long-lasting value. It doesn't have longevity to it. These kind of things, this this kind of, the, the more cray-cray, the more wild, unsubstantiated, unfact-based, you know, uh, beliefs and evidence, or sorry, um, uh, ideas that you have piling into this mix, which is already pseudoscientific garbage. All of Scientology, all of Dianetics is pseudoscientific garbage. So you've already got this pile of crap, and then you just keep piling more crap on top of it. And after a while, the sheer weight of it <laughs> just kind of makes it fall apart, right? Or disintegrate or destroy itself. So, so you, you know, so you could have that kind of slow burn destruction happen too. I think that's just a natural course of events, and that's what's going to happen to Scientology regardless. But, um, but you know, there could be other things I guess I'm not thinking of right now, but those are, I, I thought the two things that you suggested in your answer or in your question were the, the two things I've said and thought of in the past as, as ways that Scientology could be, uh, could end up destroying itself. And, uh, you know, there you go. Oh, the other thing that could happen, of course, is that the IRS could revoke their tax exempt status. They could get really serious about it and they could dig in and, and expose. And, and see, here's the thing. It wouldn't just be one day 
the IRS says, we're revoking tax-exempt status. Okay, that's it. Bye. You see, that's not how that would go, right? That would be more of, we are, re- we are revoking their tax-exempt status because A, B, C, D, E, right? And they'd have a, a list of reasons, and those reasons would have evidence behind them. They would be documented, factual reasons why Scientology is gaming or corrupting or abusing the tax-exempt system, which it is. So it's not going to be a hard case to make if somebody from the IRS would just get some balls and go do it. But I don't think there's even people in the IRS on the job right now to do that kind of investigation, much less revoke the tax-exempt status. The IRS is, is, you know, is, is not a well-organized activity right now, and they are certainly not doing their job of policing uh, tax compliance. They're just not. Not in any sense is the IRS doing that. So, um, so you know, if they did, then you would have the, um, the tax exemption revoked, and that would hit the wallets of every single American Scientologist, which is the bulk of Scientology is still in the United States, as far as I can tell. So that would hit them hard, and that would be an undeniable blow to Scientology. I mean, b- believe me, Scientology would drain its reserves before it would let that happen. So in the fight to revoke their tax-exempt status, if there was a, a battle or a fight, Scientology would, would be tooth and claw, right? It would, be, it would be scorched earth tactics, anything and everything they would need to do. But I don't think at this point they could possibly repeat what happened in 1993 because there's been so much exposure of Scientology's abuses and they don't have any credible or plausible deniability anymore for all the bullshit that they do. They did in 1993. There was no internet. You know, the IRS was taking Scientology at their word. If they really jumped in and investigated Scientology, they'd find out that Scientology's word is is meaningless. It's useless. It means nothing. They are the they are the biggest pack of liars and con men ever. So, if they really got serious about that, that would hit Scientologists hard and that would get a whole bunch of them guessing or second guessing or questioning what the hell's going on here. And um, and that could have some pretty devastating consequences, especially over time. And if the church lost its tax-exempt status, then that means they'd have to start paying more in taxes themselves. And that could lead to all kinds of fun stuff. It wouldn't be the same thing as them losing their religious exemption, their religious status, um, so they would still have First Amendment protections, and there would still be a lot of shenanigans and stuff they'd be able to get away with, but it would hit them in the wallet really hard, I believe. And um, unless I'm missing something, you know, that I don't, you know, but I, I believe this would be a really devastating blow to them. So, uh, so that's what I can say about all that. All right, let's do some flash answers. Paul. Did people ever refer to COB as SOB in private? Not once in my earshot did anybody ever say that. Kevin Zay, what's your favorite spacecraft in the Star Wars universe? Mine is the B-Wing. Hey, that's cool, Kevin. Yeah, the B-Wing. That's actually the one um, Lego Star Wars uh, ship I don't have. (laughs) I'd like to get that. 
the the expert, the big one. That'd be awesome. But as far as favorite Star Wars ship, I mean, it's it's the Millennium Falcon, pretty much hands down. I mean, uh, you know, if it, it, the 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 one one of the things I've I've said uh, to my friends before when we talk about this stuff is, um, you know, if you could have anything, and I mean anything out of sci-fi fantasy you know what 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 item what device could you have it's for me it's always been a toss-up uh between a lightsaber and the millennium falcon <laughs> so this is this has always been a special thing for me going all the way back to to when the movie came out jfh how are the lrh homes that are kept secret a memorial and show quote unquote when they can't be seen by anyone not even Scientologists are told about them. Crescent Ranch and Gold Base Mansion are two such homes. Okay, thank you for this question. You might have noticed, and maybe you didn't, when I answered a couple weeks ago about um, L. Ron Hubbard homes and how they are sort of museum pieces and they are presented as a, as a memorial and a show, as you mentioned here uh, in the question, I said, I, rem I seem to recall saying that there are some people who do believe that L. Ron Hubbard is coming back, hardcore Sea Org Scientologists. And these would be the people who would be at the level of the Gold Base or the Creston Ranches or the other CSI or, sorry, um, uh, Church of Spiritual Technology, CST properties, the, the, the vaults, the bases, right, uh, in Tremensha and, you know, a couple in California, et cetera. Those are hardcore, hardcore Sea Org members, right? Those are lifers. And they have jumped through every loyalty test that David Miscavige knows how to put in front of somebody. So those guys are the ones who might have the idea that Hubbard actually is coming back. Okay, so I didn't mean to infer or get across the idea that nobody thinks that's true. But I wanted to highlight the fact that very few people think that's true. And if I said no one thinks that's true, well, then that was my bad in my wording. But I can't remember right now what I, what I said exactly there. But, um, but yeah, clearly those, those properties are for the Sea Org. And it's, and it's only hardcore Sea Org members that are keeping those properties up or paying any attention to them. Okay, guys, thank you very much for coming around and watching this week. I really appreciate your viewership and your support. So please do support my channel. I really do need it. I have to be honest with you guys. You know, financially, things aren't wonderful. And it would be wonderful if I could get some more support from you. Even if all of you who watch my show gave $1 a month to Patreon, uh, that would make a difference to me that I really could not even begin to describe to you. Okay, and it would very, very much improve the my ability to provide quality work to you guys. Uh, there's a lot of time problems right now with me in the last few weeks with getting my uh, college work done, and I do understand that 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 um, I, I think personally that you know the quality of my work has suffered a little bit because of the time constraints. But I'm getting through this, and um, I am determined to graduate, and I am going to graduate, and it is going to take me a little bit more time to do that. Um, and once that's done, I will be, you know, hitting the ground running again on getting um, some other long promised video content done. And um, as well as other things that I haven't even mentioned to you guys that I want to do a series of videos and other work I want to get done. So I really do need your support. And if this channel and if the work I'm doing is important to you and you are a 
returning subscribing member and somebody who likes what I'm doing, then please do consider supporting me through Patreon. It, I, I'm telling you, it makes a huge difference. All right. So that's my pitch. And with all of that, thank you very much. I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.